Uh, this, this handout has a backside. I couldn't keep it all on one page. <coughs> when you hear the book of Deuteronomy, what do you think of? Ten Commandments? Great. Promised Land? They're right on the verge of the Promised Land. Do not, do not forget who our ability to gain wealth comes from. Do not forget where our ability to gain wealth comes from? Say more about that. Deuteronomy 8. Um, uh, God says, remember, beware not to forget, hmm. and remember again who gives you the power to gain wealth. Hmm. Deuteronomy 8, 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. I don't look at it just as financial, family, mm-hmm. and intellectual, mm-hmm. everything will be better. Mm-hmm. Later in Deuteronomy, when you get into the blessings and curses, he gets into all these abundances that I believe would be a part of that promise of wealth that God gives to, to his people. Yeah. Remember. That's good. That, that, and that helps when you think about the word remember that helps us place this Historically, the context. This is Moses reflecting on the last 40 years, or the, really the last. Um, how long did Moses live? Uh, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in. Yeah, 120 years, yeah. So 40 years in Midian, 40 years in. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, 40 years in the wilderness. So, so Moses is reflecting on the last 40 years in the wilderness and what God had done bringing Israel out of, out of slavery, and he's reminding them remember the Lord your God. And that's the title of chapter 8 here as I'm looking at it. Remember the Lord your God. And so it's... Also listen. Mm-hmm. Listen. Shema. Yes, Shema. That's what I think of. Yeah, Shema. So it's not just the Shema, but it's uh, mm-hmm. over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Listen, and it's connected to love. Mm-hmm. That's where the greatest commandment comes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and so listening and love uh, are connected. Mm-hmm. Like you show your love to God by obeying His commandments, mm-hmm. by listening to mm-hmm. Him. Um, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, but that's also that's vertical, mm-hmm. but also right now, mm-hmm. horizontal listening mm-hmm. and love yeah. is uh, one of the greatest ways of showing love to somebody that you value that is by listening to them. Yeah, absolutely. The value of listening. And Moses gets into that, the not just the vertical dimension, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but also love your neighbor as yourself. And he breaks that down for chapters and chapters and chapters. And that includes that, that care of listening. Deuteronomy is considered the theological core of the Old Testament because it is Moses who has witnessed the most um, iconic, uh, and I don't mean that in a cheap sense, uh, the the main event, when people think of God's redemption that he worked for Israel, you think of the Exodus. Moses led the people through that. He's about to die. He knows he doesn't get to go into the promised land for his sin. Um, and 
And, and although the book doesn't tell specifically what that sin is, the best the best understanding of it is because he struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock. So he had um, he had disobeyed the Lord. So this is Moses, the leader of the the nation of Israel on the verge of the people going into the promised land, he's about to die and he's reflecting, he's remembering all that God has done. And so it really is a rich a recap of the first four books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Yeah, there you go. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and here's Deuteronomy, kind of the, the wrapping it up. The title means Deuteronomy means second law. And so the book summarizes the Pentateuch so far in the form of a covenant renewal with the second generation. The rest of the first generation had died off, except for Moses. And the second generation, who was too young to remember the first time the covenant was made at Sinai, um, through, the, through the waters and at Sinai, uh, they, they are getting the renewal here. And it doesn't mean that they weren't part of that first covenant. They were. They were blessed by that covenant. That covenant was valid for them. Uh, But here, God graciously renews the covenant, as he does for us every Sunday. We get to hear that covenant again. And our covenant children, uh, they're too young to understand it at times, but that doesn't mean that they're not valid recipients of the covenant. And so as they grow in it, they hear it again and again and again until the Lord ignites that fire of faith in them. Uh, This Most of the book is composed of Moses' sermons and Moses' speeches. They're written down, basically, sermons that he gave, and uh, some longer than the other. And it also, so it looks back in remembrance, but it also looks forward to the promised land because it gives, I I like this quote here, it provides fuller instructions for the war of conquest and, and how they are to live in the land once it is conquered. So once you get to the promised land, here's what it looks like to live properly as God's covenant people in the land that he's promised to give you. So there are a lot of rules, a lot of uh, fleshing out of uh, God's commands for how they are to live once they get there. Some famous passages are the Ten Commandments again, mostly in chapter 5, but you see there I have noted chapter 5 through 26. It's 11 chapters, 12 chapters. He spends a long time fleshing out the Ten Commandments in this book. Uh, Then there's the Shema, which as you said is not just the Shema. It It became known as the Shema. Shema means here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then from there it goes on into, we're going to look at the Shema here shortly, uh, into the greatest commandment. And then one of my favorite things about uh, the Shema is it goes in to say, make sure you tell your kids. Write it on the doorpost of your house. When you rise and when you sit, when you go out, talk about these things. Uh, There's circumcision, circumcision of the heart. There's the regulative principle Wow, this is deep Presbyterianism here. This is uh, the concept that we don't do anything in worship that God has not commanded us. And the, command, and, and the idea that we, we do everything that he does command us. So there's the normative principle that some people hold to. They say, well, we can do anything. We must do what he commands, and we can do whatever else he has not prohibited. So that's a more inclusive view. That's not the view that the PCA holds. And this is quoted often in the New Testament. Deuteronomy is quoted often in the New Testament, one of the most quoted along with Genesis, Isaiah, and the Psalms. So it becomes kind of the theological heartbeat of the Old Testament that is quoted often in the New Testament. All right. Background issues here, authored by Moses as the rest of the Pentateuch uh, is, completed by Joshua or someone later because you see a description of Moses' death there in chapter 34. 
So uh, somebody had put in a, an addendum on the end explaining how Moses died before they uh, crossed into the promised land. At the time of the writing, the wicked first generation is dead, and Moses addresses the second generation and subsequent ones. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 really gets into uh, the value of passing this on, not just for your generation, but for the next generations. And he's retelling God's covenant as they are positioned to conquest, uh, to for the conquest of Canaan. So it's really a book preparing them for action. And I love that concept that it's a preparation for action by doing what? Remembering. It's this idea that how, how do we look forward to what we have to do today as Christians and tomorrow? By remembering God's faithfulness, by looking at what he has done. And, and it's really a powerful, powerful message. That's what the Psalms do it a lot. They look back on, oh, but, but Lord, you have done this. And I will not forget what you've done. And I will hold you to what you, who you said you are and what you will do. And that's where we find the hope. Um, not just to get up and do it on our own strength, but to realize the Lord is the one who will carry us through whatever it is that is ahead of us. There are elements of the suzerain vassal treaties again. I don't know if you all remember us talking about that, especially the suzerain vassal treaties. So there's a greater suzerain and a lesser vassal, and they enter into a covenant together. And there are these elements. It was a common literary form in the ancient Near East that is, um, is a part of the Pentateuch as well. And so uh, the suzerain enters into the covenant, per- pursues uh, the, the vassal, and says, you're entering into this relationship with me. Here are the stipulations. Here's what you must do. If you do it, here are the blessings. If you don't, here are the curses. That, that happens in Genesis uh, 12, 15, 17, 22. Uh, that happens in uh, Deuteronomy. And it, I believe it happens other places as well. But at least in these places, we see the suzerain vassal treaties coming back. And that's a part of the covenant renewal that we'll see in chapters um, 27 and 28 and 29. Perhaps, yeah, through 30. Jacob, yes. What, what Samson's... Uh, was that a Levite guy? Nazarite. Nazarite. Mm-hmm. Was that, um, that would be one, right? I don't know about the Nazarite vows. I don't remember where those where we could find details on that. That's probably coming up. Yeah, it's um, it, it very well may be. It's a, it's just a specific textual order, so it, it might be that. But in terms of content, it sounds like it. These these blessings and curses. Do this. Don't do this. Yeah, that sounds about right. And it always starts, the suzerain vassal treaties always start with a statement of what the suzerain has done for the vassal. The Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It goes through the Ten Commandments. So you see more of that again here in Deuteronomy. So let me give you a big picture outline. This is from Miles Van Pelt. Uh, specifically, uh, John Scott Red wrote the chapter on Deuteronomy. There is an outer frame. So here you see the chiastic structure again. You all see that at the top of the middle column, A, B, C, B prime, A prime. This is a common feature in Hebrew uh, writings to have this structure. You have the outer frames beginning and end. You have the inner frames B and B, and then the central core is the point. And you'll find this in Psalms. You'll find this in uh, lots of theological uh, and narrative uh, features in, in the Old Testament. So outer frame, there's a look backward. 
And then the next, these are the first three chapters. And then chapters 4 through 11, Moses gives a great charge and also summarizes what God has done, uh, including the, the, some commandments. And then there's the central core, which are the covenant stipulations. And that becomes the, the centerpiece of what it means to live as God's people, especially as you look at going into his land that he's promised. This is what it looks like to live as his people faithfully in that land. And then uh, as you step back out further down through the book, it kind of steps back out to the other inner frame. There's the covenant ceremony that supports those uh, covenant stipulations. And then there's the look forward to going into the land in the last few chapters of the book, which mirrors, of course, the look backward at the beginning. That's a big picture outline. Um, I really actually prefer the next outline, which is incredibly detailed. Uh, it's, this, this itself, we, we could spend all, all evening on just this, and, and we may. We'll see. Uh, what I did is I, I combined some features that I found uh, from Matt Bradley and the Miles Van Pelt chapter into this structure, which really helps you see chapter by chapter what's going on. Uh, first of all, there's Moses' first speech. Because if we say this is a compilation of his speeches, I think it's helpful to see the speeches structured. So the first five chapters are his first speech. And if you look at it in terms of the covenant, the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, like a covenant, this provides the historical prologue. This is God saying, here's what I've done. As Moses looks back, saying, look what God has done. First five chapters. And he recounts the wilderness. That's kind of the, the italicized, it's kind of the content, the big idea. Uh, and then you move to Moses' second speech, which really focuses on how do you live in the land. And uh, so you'll see uh, this, this includes in the covenant structure stipulations and blessings and curses. Stipulations and blessings and curses. Stipulations are here's what you ought to do. Here's what you must do to receive the blessings of the, of the covenant. And if you don't hear the curses you receive. And this is chapters uh, 5 actually through 28. Uh, because you see covenant ratification ceremony is the last two chapters there. 27 and 28. Uh, so 5 through 26 and then 27 and 28. Uh, how to live in the land. This, this was new for me. My eyes were opened. I mean, this is really bad. I really should have known this. Um, Moses takes the Ten Commandments and then from chapters 6 through 26, fleshes them out. He gives a sermon on what the Ten Commandments mean specifically for the Israelites, where they are and where they're going. He basically applies the Ten Commandments for them. And uh, I, I was like, no, nah, that can't be what he's doing here. And I flipped through and looked at every single one of these, and I said, that's amazing how Moses really just walked through the Ten Commandments. There are a couple instances um, where it, you might say, I don't, I'm not quite sure I see that. And so there is some disagreement over whether that is really intentionally what he's doing in that order. Um, but it is, um, I don't know how you could say he's not walking them through an outworking of these covenants, or of these commandments. And maybe um, maybe he did it in a different order. Maybe he combined some here and there. But this is the general structure of the content as he works through it. So he retells the Ten Commandments, and then in chapter 6, dives in. And then that helps you make sense of, oh, the Shema, I've heard of that. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It makes sense that that would be the first explanation after the Ten Commandments, because the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. It's this, this sermon on monotheism, because there is only one God. You can't worship anything else. By the way, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, the Hebrew there is, you shall have no other gods in my face. <laughs> so, so that's actually the Hebrew. And the question is, where is God's face? Everywhere. 
It's not a question of, oh, you can have other gods as long as they're second place and third place. No, it's you shall have no gods, period, because my presence is everywhere, and you shall have no other gods in my presence. That's, that's really what that command is. So that's why we call this monotheism. And so you see that played out with the Shema. In fact, now's probably a good time. Let's open up to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. The uh, famous verse comes in in verse 4, but I think we should read verses 1 through 3. It helps you understand kind of this context of of what Moses is doing in this book. He says, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Now the commandment, you got to remember, if you look back just to that prior chapter, is the Ten Commandments again. So this is all in the context of remembering, these are the Ten Commandments, this is how you live. And then he starts uh, to break it down. But uh, let's uh, hear verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, do these commandments, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the Shema, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then he goes on to talk about um, what to do when you come to the land that the Lord your God has sworn to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I love the intergenerational and the very practical outworking of how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength? How do you have no other gods before me? It's by doing them. And they shall be on your heart and you shall teach them and talk about them when you're sitting in your house. And put them on your doorposts. Very practical ways that you learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What are your thoughts on... I mean, of course, he goes on for another five chapters on what it means. But um, what are your thoughts here on the Shema? Um, I'm struck by verse 3. Mm-hmm. Shema, therefore, O Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, mm-hmm. which that harkens back to the Genesis lesson of, mm-hmm. of being being fruitful and multiplying. Absolutely, right, and and and, and being promised a land mm-hmm. flowing with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Again, again, a kind of similar. Absolutely, right back to he's. The garden is a 
place where heaven and earth come together. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, and then we foolishly disobeyed and we were exiled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that exile landed them eventually in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And he's bringing them back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Right? And now we've got the tabernacle mm-hmm. and he's in their midst. Mm-hmm. And and he and he's he's basically saying the same thing he said to Adam and Eve, right? Which is listen to me. You can have all of this. Just don't don't like don't take this tree, which is basically saying, I'm gonna do what I think is right in my own sight. I'm not gonna trust you. I'm going to trust my own wisdom mm-hmm. instead of God's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And it's, you, when you read from here on out, especially right through 11, the plea, the heart of God, which is so steadfast and loving, mm-hmm. uh, when you read it in that light, that, that he's, he's, he's coming again. He's mm-hmm. begging us mm-hmm. to, to come again. Mm-hmm. Join us in this Eden-like mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. But life, true life, which is described as blessing and multiplication, is is dependent upon our trusting him enough to be obedient mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. his laws and his commands and his statutes. Mm-hmm. It's really one of the most amazing things when you, and I've just been having this conversation a bunch of atheist family members who are like God is not love mm-hmm. because he condemns people to hell mm-hmm. and I'm like I'm sorry you don't know what you're talking about yeah. right when you see the persistence of God mm-hmm. that he can do that mm-hmm. it's just amazing sorry mm-hmm. I don't want to really long no I think you're I love the emphasis on God's patience and long suffering right. and persistence that's exactly what he's up to for wayward people like us who have wandered in the wilderness and wanted to go back to slavery. Um, yeah, lots of things you said. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to keep digging into. I, I love that. And, and, and it is so gracious of him to give us these commandments that bring life. And since we shirked the garden and the blessings there, We don't deserve any of these fulfillments and blessings. And the fact that he gave the tabernacle and the temple to bring that, a taste of that again to his people, to all who trust in him, to be his his presence with his people, that gets us longing for the final day when heaven comes to earth. You got the new heavens and the new earth, and then this whole place is his temple. And we have an even fuller understanding of that now because his spirit is with us and he gathers with his people in his house. And so all these blessings that he's promised reach their fullest fulfillment. Even all the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, all those blessings reach their fulfillment in the true Israel who are in Jesus Christ when he comes to earth again and brings heaven to earth. Uh, And And in order for God to get his people there, which he's going to do because he's promised it, he has to be so patient with people like us. He says, you threw it away. 
I'm going to give you another chance, and then I'm going to do it for you as Jesus. Your job now is to just trust me to do it for you. Trust that I have done it for you, and then I give it all to you. It's generosity after generosity after generosity, grace upon grace upon grace. That's the first commandment. Um, second commandment is chapter 12, and this is where you see uh, the regulative principle pop up. Let's flip over there, because uh, reading Deuteronomy 12 as um, an outworking of the second commandment, which is, you shall not make any images of anything under heaven and heavens above or earth beneath you, shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Um, if you read Deuteronomy 12, in light of that, he's, he's working out what does it mean to worship God properly. He says this in verses uh, 12, uh, Deuteronomy 12, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 12, verse 29 says this, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you do not, or that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, and they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So there is this um, this concept of, well, if I'm really sincere in my worship, then that's just what God wants, right? God absolutely wants sincere worship, but he wants sincere worship done in obedience to how he's commanded worship to be done, not the way the world does it. And you can read that also in light of uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, and I'm just going to flip over there really quickly since we're on the regulative principle. Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land you are going over to possess. This is not the only, um, there's more in the, in the context here and in other parts of Deuteronomy, but it's the concept of God revealed himself without image. And when Israel tried to create that image of the calf to have some kind of representation to worship, God, said, God, God punished them dramatically for that violation of how he had revealed himself. He revealed himself through words and through the commandments. And so what we're trying to do with the regulative principle is we're not trying to be sticks in the mud. We're trying to make sure that we don't err into the ways of the world. Uh, when we move across the hall here into the sanctuary, we've been, I really appreciate your help on this. We've been working to figure out how can we cover those stained glass images of Jesus? Because those are man-made images of who knows what. It, does that actually look like Jesus? It doesn't matter. That, that's not even the point. The point is, why are we trying to worship in ways that God has not given us? He's given us his word and it is enough. He's given us, given us his commands, and they are enough. And he's, um, he's told us other specific ways that worship is done properly, and that includes songs, 
singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs of thankfulness in your heart to God, um, prayers. He's, he's commanded these things. And so these are the means. These are enough. And so we don't want to try to add more than is um, what we know is proper to worship God. Else we end up like the pagans. I can. And like outside of the context of worship itself, mm-hmm. how the images that we have might be used properly or improperly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do that. I can. Um, maybe that's a good, good lesson to have, kind of independently, some Sunday night. Like, let's talk about how does this play out in more than worship space, in the life of worship. Um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I have a lot I need to learn about articulating these things and, and, and understanding them fully as well. So that's... that's for saying that because I'll be honest, when we were talking on Sundays, and I, I had always kind of like, what is a tongue? I didn't understand what mm-hmm. was in there that, mm-hmm. that wasn't biblical. Mm-hmm. And, and you said, the one goes, I mean, my experience is... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very visual, mm-hmm. and I I would have no idea that there's mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to know more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think I owe that to all of us to make sure that it's something we understand that we're doing. Um, it, it's a beautiful art form. Yeah. I love these windows. Yeah. Um, I was looking at them this morning, and then I realized, well, there's no images in those. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's nothing. So I'm guessing that these are okay. Yeah, these don't contain images that are supposed to aid in worship. Yeah, um, a lot of the the people who um, hold to this most tightly over in I've seen over in Scotland. I went to a um, might have been England. I can't remember where, but there was uh, I went into this. No, <laughs> it was in Israel, and um, just across the, um, the valley of Hinnom, there was a Scottish Presbyterian church cathedral it was white stucco walls and nothing else it was the most plain sanctuary i'd ever been in they take this so seriously nothing nothing that will distract or cause our minds to to run to um unhelpful recreations in our minds so that's uh that's that is so contrary to the catholic way of thinking of putting the stained glass pictures up Mm-hmm. for people to visualize and understand. Total opposite of the Roman Catholic yeah. Church. And it is a reaction to the Roman Catholic Church. Not not specifically. It didn't start with a reaction to the Roman Catholic Church. It actually started in... I, I might be getting my dates wrong. 800 to 1000 BC. Or AD, excuse me. Uh, there were a lot of debates over the use of icons in the church. Mm-hmm. So iconoclasm actually started a long time earlier, hundreds of years earlier. And the question was, did they, is that because they, people started using icons at that time and the people rebelled and said, no, we can't do this? Or had icons been in use since long before that? Uh, and in what capacity? And all those questions. So, yeah, you're right. It absolutely is, in part, a reaction to the Roman Catholic misuse of images. Yeah. Uh, the third commandment is chapters 13 and 14, the Sabbath, chapters 14 through 16. And, we, and you can see that all the way through. Um, to the 10th commandment. And then there's a conclusion for a few verses. Let's read the conclusion in Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26, verse 
Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 19. He's been giving this sermon, if you will, on how the Ten Commandments apply to these people, and he wraps it up like this. Deuteronomy 26, verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in high honor above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. And that's exactly that glory that Christ has for his people kept in heaven for you, imperishable, unfading. And by adoption, that's us. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, it's a beautiful promise. And it's all based on what God has done for us. And so the question is, uh, why do we keep all these commandments? And it's not to get on God's good side. We're going to pick up with Moses' third speech next time. But there's one thing under message in theology that I really want us to get to before we, um, before we wrap up. The first point under message in theology, third column, top. The law that Moses reiterates here for the people of God is not a means by which they are to earn either their redemption from slavery or the presence of the Lord in their midst. We got, a, we, we got to this a little bit earlier. We, we hinted at it. These blessings belong to them as God's people. These blessings are already theirs. Redemption has already been promised. The covenant is already made. The Lord's presence is already in their midst because they're God's people. The instruction of Deuteronomy explains theologically what these events mean for Israel as God's people. And it offers a faithful, inspired guide for how Israel ought to respond to their, to their singular, holy, and loving covenant Lord. So we as believers, then, when we hear commandments, when we hear Jesus reiterate Old Testament commands, and when we hear the Ten Commandments read, and we hear the moral law in Scripture, we read this not as ways to earn God's favor, but ways to live because we already have God's favor. Because God's already done it. So here's, this is what it looks like to properly live. Um, I'll, I'll use this one analogy. Uh, imagine a, a, a kid who was raised in the slums of a third world country in uh, just extreme poverty and then is adopted by um, someone from the swanky part of town. And this, this child comes over uh, from, from their, their home country uh, comes to their comes to America has to go th to the government buildings and um, get all the paperwork sorted out. Parents have done most of it, you know. The final final touches. They go through the, the whole visa thing uh, at the at the border, um, customs, and, and they they finally drive up to the house. And the kids thinking, oh my goodness, what government building is this? And the parents say, no, you're home. And then they they. They lovingly take the child in and say, all right, here's your room. Like this, stuff, this stuff's hard to register. Somebody coming from that kind of poverty now to the nice part of town uh, in American uh, wealth. And uh, here's your room. And uh, in the morning, 
uh, you'll hear us call down for breakfast. Uh, that'll be around 7.30. Before that, um, make sure you've, you've washed your face, you've put on your clothes, you've made your bed, and you've opened your blinds. And the, the next day rolls around, and the child hasn't done a single one. Not a single one of those things. And, and the, the dad comes in, and um, he doesn't come in in wrath. He comes in in patience and says, let me remind you, this is how we do things here, now that you're a part of this family. Let me show you how you wash your face. Let me show you how you make your bed, how you open your blinds. And, and that's what it is to live in relationship with God. He's already adopted us. He's already brought us home. We're already in, inheritors of these enormous blessings. And then we get to live in response to that. And so it's really a blessing for us that God has given us these instructions. It says, here's how you live as my children. And that's what Moses is trying to get the Israelites to understand here. And that's what Jesus, the new Moses, is trying to get all his followers to understand about these laws. So um, forgive the extended analogy. I hope it was in some way helpful. We'll pick up with Moses' third speech. Uh, not next week, because we have uh, Pastor Scott Wright from Redeemer is going to come in and pre- uh, teach for us next Sunday evening. Uh, so I'm really excited to have him uh, next Sunday evening. <clears throat> and then we'll get to this here in a couple weeks.